Welcome to Storybound, presented by LitHub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. Coming up in one minute is a story told by Caitlin Dottie with original composition by Stephanie Strange. If someone is trying to sell a house, do they have to tell the buyer someone died there? There are some brand new luxury condos being built in my neighborhood in Los Angeles. They're overpriced and not very attractive. Think giant white Tupperware. But we can be pretty sure that no one has died in them. Yet. Pro tip, if you have your heart set on living somewhere that absolutely, positively no one has ever died in, buy a new house. Preferably one that you've watched being built. Because the truth is, if you live in a charming pre-war bungalow or a grand Victorian mansion, it's possible you're watching TV and eating popcorn where someone breathed their last breath. And nobody has to tell you about it. The laws differ from place to place on what someone selling a house is legally required to tell the buyer. Generally speaking, if someone died a peaceful death in a home, meaning it wasn't part of an axe murderer's chopping spree, the seller doesn't have to tell the buyer. The same goes for accidental deaths, say falling off a ladder, and suicides. And no place in the United States requires sellers to disclose deaths related to HIV or AIDS. In some cases, the seller will be advised not to reveal that a death has occurred, as it could cause unnecessary stigmatization of the property. No seller wants the buyer's mind reeling off into visions of gory crime scenes, torrents of blood like the elevator in The Shining, or, you know, ghosts. Death has happened in many homes, more homes than you probably realize. Perhaps in the very house where you're listening to this book. Remember, people mostly used to die in their own homes, not at hospitals or nursing homes. So if your house has been around for 100 years or more, it's highly likely to have seen death within its walls. If someone died peacefully in their home, they were probably attended by loved ones or hospice workers. After the death, the corpse was removed from the home way before any heavy-duty putrefaction set in. These are not the types of deaths that ghost stories are made of. Even if, for some reason, there was heavy-duty putrefaction going on, a skilled cleanup crew can get a place so spick and span that you'd never know there was once a corpse decomposing in the room that's now your man cave. For example, a friend of mine, I'll call her Jessica, lived in a fifth-floor apartment in Los Angeles. One spring, she noticed an odd smell pervading her apartment. At first, she thought she just needed to do a better job of cleaning her cat's litter box. It wasn't long before it became clear that the smell was coming from the apartment directly underneath hers. 
a man had died alone at home, and nobody had found his body for over two weeks. The cat litter smell was decay, wafting up through the floorboards of the old apartment building. Authorities were called, and the corpse was removed. Jessica, unable to help herself, climbed down the fire escape to peek in the open window of the dead man's apartment. She saw what remained of her neighbor after the coroner took the body. A thick black stain spread across the floor, and rogue maggots wriggled through the liquid. No, you obviously wouldn't want to rent the apartment in that condition. But fast forward a couple of months, and the apartment had been overhauled. Everything was sparkling clean and rented again. Jessica met the new people who moved in and asked them how they liked their new apartment. They were very happy. No complaints about smells or such. Jessica decided not to say anything about her former neighbor. Did the new tenants know a death had occurred in their apartment? Legally, a California landlord has to tell you if there has been a death in the apartment within the last three years. California is one of the only states with a law this specific. If, later on, the tenant comes to feel harmed by the death in their home, they may be able to sue. So disclosing the death to them in advance, before they rent, is really the only way for the landlord to protect themselves from a future lawsuit. But it's possible that Jessica's landlord didn't know the law, or ignored it, and never said anything. It's worth noting that in some U.S. states, Georgia, for example, a landlord only has to tell you about a recent death if you ask. But if you do ask, they are required to answer truthfully. Sort of like how a vampire can only come into your house if you invite them in. The takeaway from Jessica's story is, if you are worried about recent deaths in your potential new home, you should ask. Asking should work in most places, but not all places. Oregon, I'm looking at you. In Oregon, it doesn't matter when or how someone died. Nobody has to tell you anything. Brutal, violent deaths included. Murder, suicide, peaceful death, it's all the same in the beaver state. In realtor speak, what matters is something called material facts. Material facts are things that can affect a buyer's desire to purchase a property. Most often, this is stuff like cracks in the foundation or invisible structural problems. Depending on what state you're in, a violent death, like a murder, might fall into the category of material fact, meaning it has to be disclosed. But peaceful or accidental deaths are not usually considered material facts. Being the site of a grisly murder can turn a house into a stigmatized property. That is, a house with a reputation. The same goes for reports of violent crimes or even hauntings. The seller probably doesn't want to tell you about the triple homicide there in 2008. But if they don't tell you and you learn about it from the neighbors, the house has a reputation, you see, you might have grounds to terminate the contract or file a lawsuit down the line. Again, it probably depends on what state you're in. 
Really, the best thing I can tell you is to get comfortable with the fact you may someday live in a house or apartment where a person died. You'll be okay. My mom is a realtor and just sold a house in which a 90-year-old previous owner died. Mom told the potential buyers because she knew the neighbors would tell them if she didn't, and they went home to think about it. They came back and wanted the house anyway, because the woman must have loved the house so much she wanted to die there. I hope to die peacefully at home, and I don't plan on staying around to haunt it either. But if you're still terrified that someone has died in your next potential domicile, get comfortable having those types of conversations with your realtor or landlord. Unless you're in Oregon. You are listening to Storybound. And now for a short break. And now we return from our break. Is it true people see a white light as they're dying? Yes, they do. That glowing white light is a tunnel to the angels in heaven. Thank you for your question. Truth is, I don't have a perfect explanation for why some people see a white light when they're near death. In fact, no one has a perfect explanation yet. Religious folks may see the light as a supernatural gateway to the afterlife. Scientists may see the light as caused by oxygen deprivation in the brain. What we do know is that these strange experiences are happening. There are just too many reports from across the religious and cultural spectrum for them not to be real. People who have survived traumatic, life-threatening situations share a set of eerily similar experiences, which scientists refer to as near-death experiences, or NDEs. Spooky as they may seem, near-death experiences aren't even particularly rare. Approximately 3% of Americans say that they've had one. The number was even higher, 18%, in a study done with elderly hospital patients. It's important to remember that not all near-death experiences are created equal. Not everyone finds themselves walking into a sparkling white light while scenes of childhood pets and awkward job interviews pass before their eyes. In one study, about half of the people who had near-death experiences said they were fully aware they were dead, which could be good or bad, depending on how chill with death you are. One in four people said that they had an out-of-body experience. Only one in three actually moved through the good old tunnel. Also, some bad news. We imagine NDEs as being positive and blissful, but that was only true about half of the time. Turns out, they can be pretty terrifying, too. There are scholars who believe near-death experiences have been happening in cultures throughout human history, ancient Egypt, ancient China, medieval Europe. 
These cultures, and countless more, have tales of religious experiences that match up almost exactly with near-death experiences. This brings up an interesting chicken-and-egg dilemma. Are near-death experiences some kind of universal religious experience? Or are religious experiences caused by the action of the human brain, basic neuroscience and biology? The setting, the vibe, if you will, of an individual's NDE can also be determined by the society in which they live. For example, American Christians might have angels greeting them in the tunnel, while Hindus might have someone sent by the god of death. Gregory Shushan, a researcher at Oxford University, writes about the wildly different accounts of NDEs, with a cast of characters drawn from the person's culture. Quote, I remember one describing Jesus in the form of a centaur riding a chariot, and a man whose heart was beating on the outside of his chest, and with hair in the shape of a bishop's hat. What makes it even harder for scientists studying MDEs is that you don't have to be near death to have a near-death experience. Researchers at the University of Virginia found that just over half of patients who recounted having an NDE were not actually in medical danger. Death, as it turns out, was not so near after all. So let's talk about some potential scientific explanations for why this might be happening. If you're a brain doctor, you're likely to explain NDEs using some fancy and confusing language like disturbed bodily multisensory integration. Other explanations include endorphins released in the brain, too much carbon dioxide in the patient's blood, or increased temporal lobe activity. But let's go for an even simpler explanation and look at another group of people who experience the eerie tunnel of light fighter pilots. Flying at high speeds can cause something called hypotensive syncope, which happens when there isn't enough blood or oxygen getting to the brain. When this occurs, the pilot's vision starts to go, with the edges going first, creating the experience of looking down a bright tunnel. Sound familiar? Scientists believe that seeing this light at the end of the tunnel is the result of retinal ischemia, which happens when there isn't enough blood reaching the eye. As less blood flows to the eyes, vision is reduced. Being in a state of extreme fear can also cause retinal ischemia. Both fear and decrease in oxygen are associated with dying. In this context, the extreme white tunnel vision characteristic of NDEs start to make much more sense. If you are religious, you may believe that God, or gods, are capable of magical things. But scientists, even the ones who believe in God, also believe that the brain is also capable of making things seem and feel magical. They believe that biology is what shapes our final moments. I'm not personally religious, but I am 100% game for Centaur Jesus riding a chariot coming to pick me up for my descent into death. See the veil in-
The strange and unusual nocturnal and illusional We are rising We know it can be quite scary In a sugar-coated world When fangs are unfurled My, what big eyes you have, oh What big teeth you have, oh What big hands you have, oh What sharp claws they harbor Can't you feel the world's colliding? Mercury in retrograde can't explain this all away We know you've been scared of your dark places What if the so-called monsters, they protect your fragile heads? My, what big fears you have, oh What dark thoughts you harbor, oh What big fears you have, it's enough to pull one under You're safe here, quoth the raven, nevermore We'll leave the light on for you, quoth the raven, nevermore All your dreams will come true, quoth the raven, nevermore You're on top of the world, quoth the raven, nevermore. Can't you feel the ground is shifting? Can't you feel your nightmares rising? We know they can be quite scary Recommend that you hold them loosely. My, what big dreams you have! Oh, what high hopes you harbor! Oh, what big dreams you have! It's enough to make one stagger.
And you see the veil is lifting The strange and unusual nocturnal and illusional We are rising We are rising We are rising This episode was comprised of two excerpts, read by Caitlin Dotty from her new book, Will My Cat Eat My Eyeballs? The music for this episode was composed by Stephanie Strange. I strongly encourage you to follow her work by searching for Strange and the Familiars. She's doing some really cool stuff, even launching her own comic series based off her music. You can find her on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to stream your tunes. We also want to thank Recorded Books for providing the audio for this episode, as well as the team at WW Norton who helped us coordinate. We also want to thank Tim Carplus for additional engineering with the final song. Storybound is mixed, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. This show's theme was developed with the help of James Cook. You can find his music under the name Grain Table. Want to tell us what you think of the show? Find us on Twitter at StoryboundPod, or you can tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. Well, next episode is our season one finale. Be sure to tune in this coming Tuesday, and if you're new to the show, be sure to catch up on all nine episodes so far. Again, above all, thank you for listening. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.